Brandon, maybe you're more of a pie eater now that I think about it. I'm more of a cake guy. Well, do you like key lime pie? Yeah, sure. I like banana cream, not going to lie. Fair. So much later that the old narrator got tired of waiting and they had to hire a new one. What were we talking about? We're, I'm still giving my review. It's like almost there, you know? Everyone, and welcome to episode 44 of Plot Devices. There's a joke in here somewhere, but I forgot to do number jokes and I've forgotten for a long time and that thing has died and dead and gone and I don't know why I ever tried it. It's a brand new episode. It's a Marvel week. It's a Disney week. Yes, we're talking more of that stuff and you're just going to have to deal with us on it. I am one of your co-hosts for today, Brandon King, alongside my happy as ever co-host. He's got a sun shining behind him, quite literally. Noah Guzman, how are you today? Hello, Brandon! We have a brand new Marvel movie in the... Not in the works, but, you know, on the release. Well, there uh, are in, there are movies in the works. You, you know what I mean. Um, Our podcast is so great, although it may be small... I don't have a size joke in here. Um, <laughs> let's let's keep it going. Uh, you know what? It's a great weekend. We just had an exciting Super Bowl <laughs> is something I would say if I was into sports, if I watched it outside of the Rihanna halftime show performance. What did you think of the halftime show? Because I know it's been very mixed. The, okay, hold on. I almost started singing. Let's let me not <laughs> do that. Song, I'm gonna, the song I'm that Rihanna didn't do? Yeah, she didn't do the Black Panther. She didn't do her Oscar-nominated song. What? I enjoyed it. I thought that uh Queen Riri stepped out onto that Super Smash Bros. type arena and delivered. You know, she did what she had to do with the new baby bacon in the oven uh, that has been confirmed. I'm not just, like, spitting rumors out here, but... Yeah, I really enjoyed what she was wearing. I thought that, you know, that that plate that she had over her chest um, was uh, very clean, very sleek with the red overcoat. And then her belly just looked like it wasn't um, like locked in with any kind of like harsh materials. It just looked like it was out there. And she unzipped her jacket so flatteringly to be like, hey, it's Riri. Check out my new baby. Um there were some letdowns, of course. You know, Ponder Replay was not a part of the um, set list, and neither was If It's Loving That You Want, among so many others. I mean, she did Diamonds. She did Where Have You Been? She did Work, and that is, <laughs> although, you know, uh, that's not the song I'll be listening to ever in the workplace. Uh, it is a song that I love throwing on repeat. So uh, how about how about for you? How did you enjoy the halftime show? It's a little weird that we didn't get Pondery for a lot of the earlier stuff. Like, I was really hoping to see Desperado. That was never going to happen because no one cares about that song. Uh, I had a heart attack when all the lights came on, and I had for a second thought of, she's not doing this, is she? And she didn't. Um, I liked the show. I thought it was fine. Uh, I don't think it compares to, like, something like The Weekends from a couple years ago or, you know, Shakira and um, um, Shakira and J-Lo's from a couple years ago. Um, it, it was fine. I love the dancers, as you say, like that moment with work where I think like the choreography really just takes that step up. I think really works. Um, pun intended. Uh, it, yeah, it's good. There were just things in there that I really wanted to see. And I think the scale of it was a bit muddled for, especially compared to like last year with the whole, um, the West Coast is top trivia, which I didn't love either, but at least had kind of a scale and a sense of fun to it. Um, but no, like Rihanna looked great, you know, Mazel Top to her and Rocky on the baby and everything. Uh, and yeah, hopefully, you know, this leads to a lot of great new music that a lot of people were hoping for. And it's funny that we talked about, you know, spectacle and big things, because what's bigger than Disney? Because that's a great transition. Uh, since Bob Iger, as many of you heard, returned to Disney uh, back in November, 
there has been a lot of speculations on what changes he was going to make in contrast to outgoing CEO Bob Chapek. And now we have our first batch of answers, although I'm sure more will be coming in the coming weeks and couple months, and everyone will have thoughts on it, including us. Just after Disney's most recent shareholder call earlier this month, several major announcements of the company were made. First and foremost, the company announced plans to cut around $5 billion in costs over the next couple of years, and more specifically, that includes around 7,000 jobs to be cut for around 3% of the company's workforce. That's according to a report from the uh, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. For those of you in the very nerdy business space, that's pretty important to bring up, uh, that a lot of people are going to be out of work on this, specifically on the content and streaming side. Uh, and speaking of which, that earnings call also revealed that around 2.4 million subscribers left their Disney Plus subscriptions in those last couple of months of 2022, the first time those numbers have dropped in the service's entire history. A lot of that, by the way, has been contributed to a uh, drop in hot star numbers. That's, of course, Disney Plus's overseas uh, kind of aspect to it. Disney lost the rights to broadcast a lot of cricket rights, which led to a lot of people dropping the services um, as they were. Uh, speaking of sports, however, that does tie into a lot of restructuring things, which, again, this is a lot of business talk, and I hope you all will stick with me on this. Uh, the company is supposed to be re reorganized into about three distinct chains of command. Uh, we're going to have Disney Entertainment, led by Disney executives Dana Walden and Alan Bergman. That's going to be for media and all streaming content. An ESPN sports division, that's going to be led by current ESPN chair Jimmy Pitaro. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And a parks and products division, led by head of Disney Parks, uh, Josh Diamero. Iger did emphasize in a later town hall he wanted his uh, new regime to return to creative control for project teams, as opposed to Chapek's focus on profits, which have been cited by analysts as a reason for his ousting by the Disney board. Finally, what I'm sure many of you guys want to actually hear us talk about, new movies. Uh, Iger actually assured shareholders in that call that several of Disney's top-tier animation properties would be getting sequels in the next few years. Among them, uh, Frozen 3 is in the works. Zootopia 2 is in the works after that uh, Disney Plus series that's dropped uh, recently, I believe. Uh, and Toy Story 5, the latter with uh, Tim Allen potentially returning as Buzz Lightyear is confirmed by social media. Noah, this is a lot of business talk and very little of actual product and content that we will get around to. But it is important to note when a company as big as Disney announces a lot of things like this, especially when it comes to something like 7,000 jobs being cut in the next year or so. But look, Toy Story 5 was announced. Do you think this was the right jumbling of things to make? What do you make of Iger's initial decisions as a, as a result of him coming back? Business, business, business. I wanted to uh, bring this topic to the show. Uh, well, you brought it to the show uh, amongst others, and I thought that this one was an excellent one to highlight just because of how uh, bizarre some of these headlines are. I mean, uh, even being outside of this industry, like in the, you know, um, business dealing space and like, I don't read, you know, the wall street or like these, these business uh, publications that would give you insight into these decisions. But I am part of conversation circles that talk about, you know, the firings that gone on that have gone on very recently at Yahoo or at Google or at Amazon or at Disney. And it's just like a sweep of thousands of employees that are being laid off that are, they exist as headlines to us, um, us being like those who are, uh, thankfully like secured in a position uh wherever they may work but to others like this is their this is their livelihood that is immediately being adjusted because of what these large companies thought they could offset during the um maybe during the pandemic with how many they hired if you involved in that space you're going to have more insight than uh myself especially but i just think it's it's an incredible um it's an incredible action for disney to take and one that so publicly makes people go like oh my god like Yes, we have these new projects in the works and they're coming our way. I can't say that I'm excited for the fifth take on the Toy Story um, 
story. But uh, that being said, I just think that it's important to bring stuff like this to, up to people's attention um, because though this, they are in the market of like, you know, um, bringing entertainment to people. And um, I was going to make like some kind of connection to Disneyland and being like the happiest place on earth. Disney is still a business and they're still making these decisions um, that affect people's lives. And so this is just, again, if I was a, like, um, like a market trend reporter or something like that, I'm sure I would have amazing insight, but for the, for the small headline, I just wanted to bring up that this is, this is a bizarre move. Um, I already shared my opinion of how I feel about Toy Story 5. I mean, Toy Story 3 was an ending. It was an ending, but we had four. I get it. We need Keanu Reeves. We need Duke Kaboom. Um, Zootopia 2. Zootopia has this following that I think I understand, or at least I pretend to. Are you on board with that following? I respect Zootopia for what it is. I think I've told the story before where I didn't love it at first, and then I watched it with a group of kids that I was camp counseling for and saw their very visceral reactions to it and was like, ah, I get it. Um, So, like, I get the appeal behind it, but I've never been a diehard fan by any means. Hey, crazy question. Zootopia, is it copaganda? Yeah, uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's honestly, I just pulled that out of thin thin air because I'm like, the bunny's a cop. (laughs) I mean, yeah, like... that's all another conversation. Exactly um, right. That's a different podcast. Um, that's not. Oh God, there's a plot device joke in there somewhere. Frozen three. Did you think Frozen two needed to happen? How do you feel about a third? Hi, this is for mutual friend of the show, Danielle Bokenkamp, and no one else. We win. I'm very excited about this. I think there's absolutely threads that you know you can do for Frozen three. Um, I hope Jennifer Lee comes back to direct. I know she's busy with a lot of the behind the scenes Pixar stuff, but I really just appreciated her take and what she brought to that movie. Obviously, the cast is probably going to return. Obviously, it's going to be a lot more magical expansions of that world. But I think there's a lot of really neat stuff you can do after the tail end of Frozen 2 went into more darker, more existential territory that I think a lot of people don't necessarily give it credit for. So I'd like to see more of that. I I really would. The ballad that Anna has with herself just to bring herself back up and like take take another step toward whatever lies ahead. I didn't understand the song when I first listened to it because I just thought, what is this doing here? You know, it was very much like, hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> and then, um, uh, I believe Olaf has a song about growing up in the second, in the sequel. And then, um, we get to that hilarious, like throwback music video of lost in the woods, Kristoff Chris- lost in the woods. And are you kidding me? In the soundtrack, we get a cover from Weezer on lost yeah. in the woods. You know, I added to my, I mean, I added both to my playlist, but, um, it also has some heard- very strong. Sorry? Have you heard Casey Musgrave's version of All Is Found? I haven't listened to it in recent past. How do you like it? I prefer her version to Rachel, Evan Rachel Wood. And I love Evan Rachel Wood, but I like Casey's version better. And the final point I made about Frozen is that the final act in Frozen 2, when Elsa is writing that, you know, the that water spirit, and then she arrives to that glacier land, and she just finds herself so powerful, man. So, so freaking good. Um is that what her her final song is called? All is found. No, show yourself. Show yourself is her final song. I, I am of the. Ask me how I know this. Hey, I'm of the opinion that it is a stronger song than Let It Go. It really is. And really you're not is. wrong. Um, I, I will make this brief before you know we wrap up on this. I get that when Iger came into Disney, he was not going to have the easiest time. Like what Chappic did. I don't think is the worst decision making any CEO has done, but it was very clearly establishing the idea of like, we were struggling during the pandemic. We need to get back to this now and getting out content for the sake of 
boosting up Disney Plus and really, you know, getting that billion dollar investment out of it for what it was. So I get where Iger's shoes are being filled. That being said, when you're cutting billions of costs and thousands of jobs years after really just the idea of workplace management has become so much more prominent in just social spaces and business spaces. Yes. Frozen three. Yes. That's fantastic. I like the idea of, you know, another toy story. I think you would do more with those characters. I think obviously if the animation department gets to grow, that's a great opportunity. But again, these are people who are losing their livelihoods under, you know, big business decisions. And I cannot necessarily stand by that, nor can I necessarily stand by that just for the sake of shareholders. And at least in the MSNBC article that I read, Iger made it pretty clear that this was for the sake of recouping losses that were during the pandemic, but it's also getting rid of people who were only brought in because of losses during the pandemic. It it seems like a little bit of a roundabout situation where just nobody wins except for the people at the very top. And I don't love that. It's a little depressing, but like there could be some good that comes out of it, I, I hope. And with that, we are going to move on to our second story of the day, which also pertains to Disney, uh, although not directly, more of like an indirect influence because Universal is apparently taking a cue from Disney in its upcoming adaptations. Uh, that company will be turning uh, DreamWorks' 2011 animated feature, How to Train Your Dragon, into a live-action feature. So yeah, they're going the, the Lion King, Beauty of the Beast route. Maybe for a while? We'll see. Uh, that movie's original director, uh, Dean DeBloa, is set to make his uh, live debut. Forgive me, by the way, I listened to about five different pronunciations. I've never said his name out loud. I am using Debloa because that's the most used pronunciation. If that's wrong, someone please correct me. Uh, sources with The Hollywood Reporter say the casting is currently underway, though no one from the original animated movie. So whether it's Jay Baruchel, America Ferreira, Gerard Butler, not sure if any of them are coming back in any capacity, as is a budget, which is one of the big questions that the production team is being faced with. Uh, Mark Platt, who did La La Land, is going to be on the production team for that. So there's a lot of uh, heavy hitters behind it. Uh, the plan is to adapt all three Dragons films as a franchise eventually. The original trilogy, by the way, spanned three movies that have garnered several Oscar nominations, over $1.5 billion at the global box office, and an eight-season spinoff show, DreamWorks Dragons, on Cartoon Network and Netflix that I'll admit I haven't seen, but I've heard it's very good at certain points. Uh, Noah, I assume, like me, that you agree to the wholehearted loveliness of the How to Train Your Dragon franchise, uh, and whether you are or not, this is big either way because it's DreamWorks adapting more live-action features, after a whole award season of Guillermo del Toro pr- pitching and praising the value of animation as a medium and as a uh, as a technique. So uh, what does this all mean, and is it good or bad? For me, Hiccup is really made by the character uh, Jay Bruchel, right? And so yeah. we're, we're experiencing that storyline without um, his talent behind the main character. It's going to lose some of its not... Can I say novelty? It's going to lose some of its charm, I guess, because that is what he really brought to the character. Hiccup is not, um, it, you know... He's no hero by any, um, I was going to say traditional means, but I'm not sure if that's the right way to phrase it. No, yeah, what yeah. I mean, He's not the traditional archetype of a hero. That's the whole point of in the first movie. Look at you, Brandon. Um, Gerard Butler, America Ferreira. I mean, I really admire the original voice cast and how they've remained consistent throughout its sequels. I think How to Train Your Dragon as a trilogy, every film. Yeah, I think I think I. This is an honest opinion of mine. Every sequel surpassed the original. I think that that's true. I mean, everybody wants to argue that the original will always be the best. Now, the original does have a golden slate around it, a golden frame. But I do think that as you move through its sequels, you kind of just get your smile widens and widens. And I think that that's only been true in the past for animated trilogies. And am I misremembering or is How to Train Your Dragon a trilogy? Is there a fourth one? Is Hidden World four or is that three? No, there were three movies. There were a couple short films in the TV series. Okay, lovely. I wanted to just bring up the fact, and 
I'm the king of derailing this, so Brandon, don't let us go too hard on this, but I just want to say Kung Fu Panda is one of the best animated, like, trilogies out there. Would you agree? Yes! Yes! Okay, I was scared. I was I was worried about that opinion because I'm like, if Brandon doesn't back me up on this, I'm kind of going to let it sink. But Brandon, we're both floating on this raft together. Cameron even admitted it. Jack and Rose could have fit on that door. You and I, we're floating in the sea right now. These are our two trilogies. I assume this is a reference because Titanic is back in theaters and we're not talking about it, but like, sure, why not? Um, I've also got so much iced coffee in me, man. It's just like the <laughs> ideas are just going. They're just going. No, you're down the rabbit hole. Okay, live action. I recently watched a Marvel movie that had so much going on around the performers that I started to doubt whether I really believe they connected with this imaginary world around them. I don't want that to stand true with How to Train Your Dragon. Is there any way we could just at least get a large puppet prosthetic mechanical head for um Midnight? What's the... I forget his name... Hic- not hiccup and toothless toothless why i say midnight is that somebody else's name no because it's it, the dragon species is i think um oh god it's i'm right yep midnight. there's something in there there's yeah. some there's a thread okay that being said yes i really do need a return to just some kind of imaginary character it's hard for me to now get used to being in the theater and watching these big um, pictures like something like how to train your dragon when it goes live action. I mean, hiccup is not hiccup. I think is in his teenage years in the first film. So we will be seeing matured actors bring out their performances because their world is just so imaginary and of their own. It would be a letdown to see a transition to live action and just not carry that same magic. On the one hand, I want to be like, look, just bring back Kate Blanchett as Valka and everything will be fine. Because uh, she could do it in live action. I could totally see it. This was inevitable by a certain extent, and I don't know how happy I am about it. Uh, and granted, I am with you. Like, How to Train Your Dragon, first of all, to go to your point, I think Kung Fu Panda 2 is better than any of the Dragon films, but I think the Dragon trilogy is better than the Kung Fu Panda trilogy. We are going to put a tab on this. Possible mini-sode, Kung Fu Panda, bracket, versus How to Train Your Dragon, How to Train Your Dragon, bracket. You know, I know a couple of people who would very much like to hear that. So we might actually do that someday. Um, this was inevitable that DreamWorks was inev- and Universal at large was going to look to what Disney and Warner Brothers were doing and taking animation brands and seeing, let's call it what it is, the novelty of moving that into live action and seeing how you can actually, how ambitious you can be in translating that material. So I kind of had the feeling this was coming eventually. I don't like it. Um, like Burke is so fleshed out in those films. And again, I haven't seen the TV series. So I don't know how they expand that really, but in the context of the films, it's again, as you mentioned, it's so developed and so of its own set. And I don't want something to feel overblown and over, you know, CG commodified such as Burke that feels so naturalistic and so living and breathing of an organism and the dragons themselves. Like again, you mentioned the, the dynamic between Hiccup and Toothless. You can't screw that up. You just can't do that. Like you need something akin to E.T. or akin to Pete's Dragon, like something that actually, and I know that Pete's Dragon was made live action too, so that nullifies my point, but you get the idea of what I'm going for. The idea of human and creature dynamics just being played so emotional that it, you know, that it brings tears to the audiences that it did in the, uh, in the original movies. And again, like I was saying, we just went through a whole award season of Guillermo del Toro cheerleading for every animation department worldwide in the, in the industry of, in the industry and just going to the idea of like, yeah, somehow that doesn't matter because live action sells and, you know, spectacle sells. And did we learn nothing from nope? 
Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at it slightly more cynically just because I love those movies so much and I love animation. And to see a company like Universal taking what seems like the wrong cue from Disney, who let's call it what it is, their live action department is not doing the greatest right now either. I'm curious for Little Mermaid, but we'll see where that goes. But it seems like a thing that was inevitable that I think is taking the wrong lesson. Um, and just go watch the animated movies. They're fantastic. I know it's still early to call, so we don't know for sure. Do you see this being big theatrical release, or is this a um, streaming option? They're not putting this on Peacock. They would be idiots to put it on Peacock. Call my bluff in five years when this goes straight to Peacock. My subscription will have been canceled by then, Brandon. Um, We all remember Halloween. Let's do some quick hits portion of the show where we uh, take a news topic that we didn't really want to do a whole group discussion about that would take too much of our time but do it in about a minute 90 seconds each because we you know like to talk and you know give it to you guys in as concise format as possible and we also try and do video formats on our tiktok page at plot devices podcast if you can follow us there link will be in the description uh noah over to yours first three two one White Lotus news, maybe, at least when it comes down to the cast, okay? I'm sharing information that I gathered from a Deadline article titled, Simona Tabasco joins Sydney Sweeney in psychological horror film Immaculate. So if you're familiar with White Lotus season one, you know Sydney Sweeney came in there and she did what she had to do. Um, <laughs> the first take of the show when it was ongoing at a resort in Hawaii showed her as a, a young um, she was just an adolescent of a family that uh, really explored what the privilege of vacation looked like for both the island inhabitants as well as the resort staff. Um, if you're not watching White Lotus, you really got to hop on board. Uh, Jennifer. Um, Jennifer Coolidge. Uh, thank you. Jennifer Coolidge is having an amazing time with her run from that show. Uh, but this is a casting announcement involving a season two actress. Her name is Simona Tabasco, uh, a, fa- a very famous character from the second season of that show because a lot of people look at Tabasco's character as the winner of the season two. So you'll have to check out season two of White Lotus and find out why that is so. But she's joining the psychological horror title Immaculate, where um, Deadline shares the summary of the film involving this. Uh, I quote, from writer Andrew Lobel and director Michael Mohan, Immaculate tells the story of Cecilia, who is being played by Sweeney, a woman of devout faith who is offered a fulfilling new role at an illustrious Italian convent. Her warm welcome to the picture-perfect Italian countryside is soon interrupted as it becomes clearer to Cecilia that her new home harbors some dark and horrifying secrets. Clearly, they are not unveiling much with that plot synopsis, but you can be excited at the fact that these two White Lotus veterans will be having their crossover moment in a psychological horror film titled Immaculate. Time, a little bit over. Maybe I'm approaching two minutes. But Brandon, this is so exciting. These are two um, wonderful performers. If, if you were watching Euphoria, I know we've had discussions like maybe you are. You've, you've watched some episodes, but psych, psych on that one. Uh, Sydney Sweeney, I just like seeing pop up in her uh, different roles. Um, there was a Blumhouse feature that she had done, which was part of like Welcome to Blumhouse. I'm trying to remember. It was part of like a series of... And she played a violinist who began to be corrupted by her passion and pursuit of the art. It's wild. But just seeing her take on like that um, lead role in that film gave me hope that eventually I could see her in something in the same genre. Here we have her again returning to the horror space and this time joined by Tabasco, who is, like I said, such a favorite from season two. If you get around to it, Brandon, you'll see why I say that because... um she just has, as we say for the great performers on this pod, such charisma, and you are drawn to where her storyline follows as it interweaves amongst the characters. Brandon, over to you for your quick hit. On to my quick hit, if I can get my darn timer to work. Uh, in three, two, 
So, uh, big news this past week in the Shyamalan family. And yes, I said Shyamalan family, not just M. Night's work. We'll talk about him in a second. Uh, basically, started off with M. Night himself. Uh, the director of the Now in Theaters, Knock at the Cabin, which unfortunately we have not gotten to, maybe at some point. Uh, he has officially ended his recent deal with Universal. And now, he's actually over at da -da -da -da, Warner Brothers. Yeah. I didn't see that coming personally. Uh, Deadline says the new deal is a first look deal spanning multiple years with projects spanning multiple genres similar to recent deals signed with uh, Baz Luhrmann who just did Elvis and Akiva Goldman who is right now working on I Am Legend 2 with the studio. Uh, this is from M. Night Shyamalan in regards to that deal. Through its recent experiences, Warner Brothers has rediscovered its love and appreciation for filmmakers and the impact of the theatrical experience. We all win when movies succeed in theaters. M. Night's career was given a jumpstart obviously in 2015. That was when Universal offered to distribute the visit when no one else wanted to. That film wound up grossing around $100 million worldwide and led to a very successful eight-year-long partnership that included uh, that film, the Split and Glass movies, uh, Old, and now Knock at the Cabin. Knight is currently finishing up the final season for Apple TV's Servant before uh, starting on Trap. That is his new film scheduled for August 2nd, 2024. But hey, wait, in a twist of events, he is not going to take that summer alone. His daughter, Ishana Shyamalan, she is going to make her feature debut on The Watchers, which M. Night is going to be producing. That will hit theaters as well in 2024, just a couple months prior on June 7th. Uh, that follows an artist trapped in an expansive forest, a couple of strangers in there, and then, oh, look, there's creatures in there. What's going to happen? End time. You know, when you see these notable directors and their next of kin, whether it be uh, their son or daughter takes on the directing title um, and they go ahead and try to stab at it. Sometimes it sticks. Sometimes it really doesn't. But do you feel like there are some significant directors in your memory um, who are actually they, their, their parents were directors, too? Do you, do you have some in mind? I mean, look, we do not have time to get into the whole nepotism baby debate right now. Uh, I will say I don't know much about Ashana's work. Uh, apparently, she did a lot of stuff on Servant. Uh, she's done, I think, a couple of short films, but this is her, again, future debut. Um, look, we've got, you know, Jason Reitman, who, in my opinion, is a very good filmmaker. You know, you talked about Brandon Cronenberg a couple weeks ago with Infinity Pool. Um, and there are examples of it out there. I think at the end of the day, getting in the door is one thing. You got to maintain it. So, like, if The Watchers is great, cool. If it's absolutely terrible and she keeps getting more opportunities, I'm going to have some questions. I want to hope for the best. Like, again, the, the synopsis is interesting. M. Night is going to be involved in that. And again, like the whole family is kind of like a dynasty is, you know, not unheard of. You know, this happens in Hollywood a lot. So at first glance, I want to be optimistic, but I also get the trepidation of, like you say, getting people in the door just because their uh, their parents are famous. Looking at this Screen Rant article, I can share a couple additional na additional names on top of that. Did you know that uh, Jonas Cuaron is actually a director as well? And he is the son of Alfonso Cuaron. And there's another one I have to bring up, and that is um, from Studio Ghibli. You know the name I'm oh, saying? Oh, yeah. Um, Goro, yeah, Goro, Goro Miyazaki. Um, and their feature project was... Earwig and the Witch. Now, let me tell you, that is not a work of his father's. I heard it was not good. Don't watch it. We are moving right along into our review territory. We've got three titles that we are covering for you today. One is a Netflix rom-com released now. There is a theatrical release that we'll be getting into. And then we have the big, we have the bold, can I say big? Mm -hmm. It is Ant-Man and the Wasp. Or small. We're not having a discussion of size on this podcast. Our first review is going to cover the Netflix-released romantic comedy, Your Place or Mine. This film stars Reese Witherspoon and 
Ashton Kutcher, baby. These are familiar stars, I think, for anyone who grew up in the uh, early 2000s, late 90s, who just always saw um, Kelso's face on their screen or Reese Witherspoon popping up in like every other feature year after year. I think both of these people are just notable faces in Hollywood. And to see them both link up for a project like this made me go, huh. You know, beyond those hilarious press photos that were shared over social media, what could this story mean and what could this feature hold? Let me tell you what this feature is about. Um, I'm actually just going to rip this summary off of IMDb. Forgive me, the brain juices are not juicing today. Two long-distance best friends change each other's lives when she decides to pursue a lifelong dream and he volunteers to keep an eye on her teenage son. So Reese Witherspoon is the she in question. She plays Debbie Dunn, a single mother to a young teenage boy um, who is kind of struggling to make friends. Uh, he... It has a lot of helicoptering done by uh, Debbie's character because she is a single mother and she has to look out for him. That's her baby. But she has an opportunity to pursue an education and um, it happens to be where her best friend lives. Her best friend is Peter Coleman, played by Ashton Kutcher. He lives all the way in New York City. And because that's where her program takes place, they kind of have this arrangement where Debbie is going to be traveling to stay with Peter while she completes this program. And then they both can have their best friend venture before uh, it's time for her to return home. The two have been friends for decades after hooking up uh, like loosely in the past. But you do know that they have. That's how the film opens. Peter, on the other hand, very snaky type of guy in the world of business. I believe his official position is like he's like a brand manager or he works with brand marketing, things like that, right? And so he is all about um, himself, really. Like he's the stereotypical high-rise rich player. Like you see a new woman in his bed probably all the time. This film actually only shows you just the one. Well, there's two, I guess. Um, <laughs> but that being said, he has aspirations aspirations to become a writer. So um, that being said... An opportunity pops up for Debbie to travel to New York and complete her program, only to realize that there's like something has fallen through the cracks. She can't leave anymore because her babysitter is unavailable to watch her kid. So Peter steps up and says, Hey, I'll go ahead and, you know, show up to watch your, watch your child and you can come stay at my place, enjoy New York for the week, complete your program. And then we'll just go ahead and swap black, swap back. So your place or mine really taking on, um, from really taken from the from the action that the two are staying in each other's places, kind of filling each other's roles. Debbie gets a chance to kind of be independent in New York, be with herself. She starts um, seeing new people. She develops a new friendship with one of um, Peter's like flings, I guess you could say. One of the lovers that kind of just stays in his building who shows up randomly like naked under a robe and is like, hey, you're not Peter. Do you want to be best friends? And Debbie kind of needs somebody to bounce off, you know, rom-com hilarities with is Minka, played by Zoe Chow. I actually really love her presence in this um, because she offers that partner companion role for Debbie while she's in this new city. While Debbie's in New York, Peter, yes, is watching Debbie's son in L.A. And because of his work in the business space, he actually he kind of just applies his uh, work methods to her kid who is struggling with bullying, struggling with finding friends and really just like um, having that kind of confidence that Peter so effortlessly exudes, at least from the outside. So Peter steps up and kind of fulfills like this father type mentor role for her son and is able to help him uh, combat these bullies that he's facing at school, uh, you know, put his mind towards things that are other than just like his strict rules and dietary restrictions. And the two actually form a close bond that I thought uh, 
I thought it was very sweet. You know, me and Brandon will get into the specifics of it, but that's all you need to know. Uh, Brandon, this movie, I, I mostly enjoyed, you know, as it was on and as it was running, it had such a throwback feel of just romantic movies that kind of just, they just flow and they happen right in front of you. They're not asking you to engage with much else other than, hey, here's the meet cute. Here are the two characters you need to focus on. Now you just need to ask yourself the question of will they or won't they wind up in the same space again? So all that being said, how did you approach this movie and did you find yourself enjoying it in the early scenes? This is Aline Brosh McKenna's directorial debut because we mentioned directorial debuts on the show. Uh, she is partially responsible for writing 27 Dresses. She wrote Devil Wears Prada. So she's very much stitched into the rom-com slash, dra- slash dramatic comedy type lane. So I was curious to see what she could do with something like that. And again, like, as you mentioned, you know, it's a meet cute, you know, Netflix rom-com and you kind of know what you're getting on this. Like, it's not a spoiler to say what happens in the end, but I'm going to hold off just in case. But like, you know what's going to happen. You know what these characters are. You know what their journeys are going to be. You know, from the very start, you get, you know, their character perspectives and all that. I just found it really hollow. And maybe that's because I'm a cold, heartless man. But like, I don't know. Something about this just didn't really work for me. I will say, I'm glad you mentioned Zoe Chow, who is maybe the one shining light in this. She is so much fun in this. I love her dialogue. I love her bands with Reese Witherspoon. She kind of brightens up the mood in any scene she's in. Um, Put aside the fact of, like, what does she actually do? Because she doesn't know Reese Witherspoon's character at all, and she just kind of grafts onto her without any semblance of, like, oh, I know. No, she's just like, you seem cool. I'm going to hang out with you permanently while you're here. And it's it's very weird character dynamics, the way that Jesse Williams, who plays her love interest in Grey's Anatomy, he pops up in here as well. Like, he's fine, but it's kind of a similar thing where at a certain point, their chemistry just kind of fizzles away. Um, we should also mention... Uh, Reese Witherspoon's son in this is actually played by Wesley Kimmel, which is Jimmy Kimmel's nephew, which is kind of neat going back to the nepotism debate kind of thing again. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, he's fine in this. Their relationship is fine. But I will say this. When I mention this movie is empty, I mean as a whole. I don't think the stories really intersect all that well. I know the point of it is, you know, seeing how their lives contrast, seeing how they fit into each other's social spaces and all that. You know, you, you even mentioned, you know, the penthouse thing, which I think is kind of one of the more important visual components in the movie. Hers is so overstuffed and just brimming with content. She's hoarded everything from her ex and from, you know, her son's really needy lifestyle. But then you go to Ashton Kutcher's place and it's, you know, this beautiful penthouse with nothing. And like the glasses still have like stickers on them and all that. And it's a very cool kind of character moment. But that's really kind of all we get. I didn't laugh that much. I wasn't really charmed by a ton of it, except for some moments between, you know, Reese Witherspoon and um, Zoe Chow, which again, I thought was really fun. But like overall, it doesn't have that same naturalistic spark that I wanted it to. It just feels kind of plastic for what it is. And I want to make clear, there is a space for stuff like that, especially on Netflix. I can understand why it went to streaming, but I just didn't really click with it. I think I'm there with you, Brandon. With the mention of this film kind of feeling hollow, I think that even translates to its, uh, some of its production. I mean, uh, you're looking at locations like LA and New York, which feel entirely too cliche for this genre. Um, and for the, for those to be the locations of both of our main characters, you're looking at Debbie inside of her penthouse apartment that she's staying in, um, that belongs to Peter. And we're like, we're forced to believe that this has to be in New York because you see the Brooklyn Bridge in the background, which is just like, it's so obviously not there that I just ask myself, you know, why, why did we choose this location? Like, why did we have to have this New York city mogul and, uh, you know, contrast so hard 
at least it's an effort to have him contrast so hard against Debbie's, you know, garden filled LA landscape who we should mention there there are two additional actors in the LA scene for Debbie uh part of her circle are Zen played by Steve Zahn Zen is the guy who kind of tends to her garden he's kind of just there again to bounce off of Peter while Peter's there so Zen pops up and talks about you know um how appreciative he is of Debbie's character and how lovely her family dynamic is and how he kind of bangs her every now and then so they definitely have like have that kind of relationship the same way Minka does with Peter so it's like they both have their person that they're meant to bounce off of but Peter actually has one more he has Tig Nataro. I love Tig Nataro. And the fact that uh, Tig shows up here as another teacher, because Debbie is a teacher, I forgot to mention, another teacher in the school, um, just kind of talking, um, you know, just, uh, I don't know. I just, I think about Tig Nataro and I think that Tig is such a perfect character for a teacher because somebody who kind of just doesn't give a shit. Um, Tig always mentions how they haven't passed the eighth grade, I think, in public or in education. That's part of like their comedy shtick. And so now them coming in here and offering like this pro, all these, they're not really profound. They're kind of just like very realistic, uh, logical examples of why Peter should just pursue what he loves. But, I don't even think those characters could really save the storyline because like you say, there's nothing really that draws the two together. Uh, they both have a, a shared interest of books, but you don't really feel that. I mean, outside of the script wanting you to remember the words memento and they want you to remember the fact that Peter organizes his books by color. And that's so absurd. Um, Peter actually has two books or sorry, Peter actually has written a book that he has never had published and he keeps in his oven in an envelope. How do we find out that? Because Minka is there to tell Debbie that it's in the oven, which by the way, I understand Peter is a bit of a dense human. That's stupid. Even for him. If you leave your oven on, this is paper. Like you, this will burn. Everything will burn. Your life will burn. Like, I don't um, know. Leave a message for Debbie being like, hey, don't use the oven. It's broken. I don't yeah. know. Something simple. But, but it's like he lives in a model home because even when Debbie walks into the apartment, she opens a silverware drawer to find a silverware, you know, packaged and clean because all he orders is takeout. So they want you to believe that these are two very, like, different personalities. So how could they ever be in love? Well, we find out that Peter actually does hold on to a lot from his past, though he swears he doesn't. And Debbie comes across like things that he has held on to throughout their uh, decades long friendship that lead to the idea that Peter definitely thinks of Debbie in more ways than just a friend. And Debbie, through reading Peter's work and just realizing what? That's the thing is like the movie comes so close to getting these profound moments. Like you'll get teases of like, you know, Ashton Kutcher's character being like, oh, yeah, I went into like rehab twice and like Debbie came to get me or like her talking about, you know, their poker experience or like, again, Ashton Kutcher's like experience where like he loves the cars where like his dad died. And I think that's kind of the narrative device in there. Like there's little quirks in there that could be pulled out into something else. And the movie just every time will go like, oh, cool. There's a thing. No, just go to the other one because we have to focus on them for a while. Like, why would we care about getting too deep into these characters? It just wants to be fluff. And again, there is a place for that, and I'm sure there's an audience for it. But again, I I think you and I are on the same page where it's like, and? I'm not going to lie. I kind of was feeling Debbie with Theo. Theo is Jesse Williams' character who is drop-dead gorgeous. And he even, um, I he's remember even, him. He's not even that interesting, but like he's interesting compared to Ashton Kutcher's in the beginning. I just like his professionalism with like he is trying to 
it's he's navigating the early stages of like you meet somebody new but wait they approached me while i was at my workplace so how do we continue this work dynamic this like um you know you're you might be hiring me for my services but i'm interested in you but also i can help you get a job like the it's a very i thought that their connection was interesting because um i don't know i just really believed it which was um kudos to you know to um our writer director here that being said, when there's 20 minutes left, you're now of the mind that like, okay, these two are about to be tectonic plates that collide. Am I here for it? You don't spend enough time believing in either headspace to like really go, yes, these two are meant to be. And I think that that's the fault of, of this film is like, there's, you know, Reese is doing what she can and there isn't really much there. Like, yes, she's a student, but the student scenes that you get, the script doesn't really have her involved with what she's studying at all. You kind of just have her in a room and she's just taking like, she has a, pen, a number two pencil in her hand and she's just working through a packet and like biting her lips. So, you know, the test must be hard. And then she turns it in and you, and you see East village college at the top or something like that. Right. Like, it's just so, it just felt like an afterthought. Like the, the fact that she's a student didn't really pay to her character at all. Um, we know that she's an editor and she gets offered a position in New York to be an editor, but that doesn't go anywhere. Like she's not really excited to continue her career in that space. Out of nowhere, she really is just consumed by her undying love for Peter, which is strange to just see happen when you think about it. As far as Peter goes, his storyline follows what, wow, could I really be more than just this? tool who kind of like uses women and then tosses them to the side and then goes through my workplace kind of just going me, 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 me. Now he's putting his attention on an adolescent in Jack's character, who is Debbie's son. And when Jack uh, lets him know that like, Hey, we work kind of as a good team. I think that you, me and my mom could be a team that works together. So however adults do that, I want that to happen. And Peter just kind of like, huh? Well, maybe we do work together because I do like her and I have been friends with her for so long and it just feels strange. It's a bit of like, it's a bit of like the shock Pikachu meme of just like, I like your mom. You should say, huh? Okay. <laughs> like he really just like, okay. He says it. I do it. I just want to give a bit of credit where it's like in the movie's climax, I expected it to go a certain trope route and it doesn't, or if it does, it just kind of does it and goes to the end. And I expected, you know, spoiler if you care, but like the notion of like, uh, Reese Witherspoon's kid gets hurt. She gets mad at Peter. They have an estrangement, but it's not the whole thing. And I expected that thing to go for like 20 minutes, like to really draw it out of like, ah, they don't like each other now. And no, the movie just does it. And then they reunite and then the movie ends. And I kind of appreciate it. She gets angry. Okay. So she's, she just gets confessed. Um, Theo confesses her love to her. She says, sorry, I think I'm in love with somebody else, which she realized like two minutes ago. And then she gets a phone call and then she's just belligerent towards Peter, letting him know, get out of LA. I never want to see you. Maybe she doesn't say that, but it's very much of that nature. And then the two meet at the airport and suddenly she's forgiven him. Like her, she's not really thinking about her son anymore. It's just kind of just. They have this big fight on the moving sidewalk and I'm just like, Oh, come on. At the airport, like, no, don't leave. Like, come on, come on. I do want to quickly say, I just found this out. Uh, the composer for this movie is actually Siddhartha Kozla, who did the music for Only Murders. This is not Only Murders, but he does a very good job. Hold it, hold it. You'll be surprised to find out. Jesse Williams does appear in Only Murders in the Building. In one episode, he is credited. He does? When? It just says, Theo Williams, Only Murders in the Building, TV series. On IMDb. For real. No, I'm sorry to derail this. This. Hold on. This is important. 
IMDb, Jesse yeah. Williams. If I had to guess, I would guess that he played like maybe the burglar that was chasing Mabel. Okay, so he's going to be in season three. Oh, no way! That's why we haven't seen him. Okay. Okay. Sorry There's to always an explanation, folks. All right, Brandon, let's go ahead and wrap your place or mine um, with our review. So I'm going to give your place or mine streaming right now on Netflix a whopping, a whopping right around Valentine's Day. Half of my heart at five out of ten. And I think I'm even being nice. It might be less than that. But um, this is a movie I think my mom would like. This is a movie that features some um, stars of the, you know, stars who are still def- definitely um, beaming in Hollywood. Like when their name pops up, everybody looks. But it's not the type of project that I think warrants their attachment. Um, it's just something that they're kind of, you know, they're there and they look great. And it's fun to see them both end up together at the end, if that's all that you care to see. And if that's why you want to throw on a film like this, I get it. You know, rom-coms aren't meant to be like this profound love story and, you know, all the stars aligned. Like, this can't be La La Land. Not everything can be La La Land. That being said, um, it's not much going on in the environments, the characters that surround both of our leads. Uh, while they may be fun, there's no real purpose to their attachment as well. I think that there is a few, there's a sequel where Pierre actually goes back to his old ways and Debbie goes to New York and has a profoundly new romantic life with Theo. But maybe that'll be explored. Maybe it's just in my fan fiction. Uh, but over to you, Brandon. Go ahead and provide your rating for Netflix's Your Place or Mine. Your five out of ten might be a bit too kind. I'm going like three and a half. I think that's only because of Zoe Chow. Like, Again, there is an audience for this. I'm not saying this is a terrible movie. And I have no doubt that Aline Brosh McKenna is going to be a very good director going forward. Like, again, 27 Dresses, Devil Wears Prada. Like, this is someone who knows how to write good material. I think she might have also written Cruella. I, I need to double check that. Um, but no, she she's very talented. Reese Witherspoon is unequivocally talented. We know from Wild, we know from Big Little Lies, she's going to be fine. But again, the chemistry here is just not there. The writing isn't either that funny or that charming, except at like certain points. The narrative threads are either too loose for me to care or too sporadic for me to pay attention to. The supporting cast really own it. Again, Zoe Chow is the MVP. Tig Notaro is right behind her. Jesse Williams is a couple of neat moments. Um, and again, the music is fun, but like, unless you are, you know, looking for something, scrolling through Netflix, you know, with your partner, or with your friends, like for good rom-com nights, there's so much better that you can watch from this. I mean, hell, even the movie that takes influence from, like, I looked to the holiday and I just watched that this year and it's a fantastic movie. It's like, go watch that. Uh, again, and just streaming on Netflix right now, if you're interested, um, all these people are going to do more interesting things in the future. I just don't think this is it. We are moving now toward a theatrical release. Brandon and I had the opportunity to uh, check out beforehand. And so we are talking today about Return to Soul. Brandon's got all the details and summary for you. So Return to Soul is the newest uh, international feature contender that unfortunately was not nominated. It did make the short list for Best International Feature. It was unfortunately not nominated. This is from Davy Chu, who is a French-Cambodian filmmaker. Uh, the movie itself is a French-Belgian-Cambodian production. It's in uh, French, Korean, and English. Uh, basically, it's the story of a young woman named Freddie, played here by uh, Jimin Park. She was a South Korean baby who was, as we find out fairly early on in the movie, so this isn't a huge spoiler, after a lot of political turmoil during the uh, Korean War, she is adopted by a French couple who, you know, take her to live with her in France. 25 years later, Freddie comes back 
to Korea, seemingly on vacation, but is eventually convinced by a lot of her friends to go and find her birth parents, which is what a lot of adoptees wind up doing. She gets mixed up in the adoption uh, processes. She has to send out these various telegrams to get in touch with her parents because basically the rule in South Korea is that you're only allowed to um, contact your birth parents so much. Otherwise, the adoption center risks uh, complaints of harassment. So she has to kind of go through that process. She does wind up getting in touch with her father, here played by uh, Oh Kwang Rook. Um, they start to reunite. Her dad's had some struggles with alcohols recently. Uh, she meets her aunt, who kind of has her own take on the family history. Uh, but her mother really isn't willing to get in touch with her. And so it's kind of this back and forth between the whole time. Uh, we jump through time periods a couple times. We see Freddie coming and going from Korea. We see her getting her first job with an arms dealer. We see her getting a French boyfriend who she takes to meet her father. And the whole thing is kind of this odyssey of this one woman's exploration of her own past, her family's past, and what particularly that means for her going forward. Uh, no, I want to talk about this because this was an international feature contender that was getting a lot of buzz. Uh, you know, a friend of the show, Carlos Aguilar, had brought it up online numerous times. I had seen a lot of other people in the international community bring it up. And I was very curious to see what it was. And it's much more of a hardened drama. Did that approach really work for you? And were you familiar at all with any of Davy Chu's work prior to this? I cannot say I was familiar with Davy Chu's work before Return to Seoul. And uh, having watched it uh, within the last day, I'm still processing what our main character was after. Like, I think throughout the, you know, viewing it, one, the movie is silent as hell. There is no score or like soundtrack to fall back on as we transition between scenes of her having these wild nights out with, you know, strangers, sometimes dates, sometimes friends, sometimes something in between. And then immediately placing ourselves in an intimate setting where she's meeting, yeah, her birth father and the family she was born from and learning about their livelihood and having to deal with their, um, it seems like they have a lot of, or not they, but mainly the father has a lot of regret in terms of what he missed out on providing to his daughter. And when he, at a certain point in the film, he asked her to stay and the communication that exists between the, this daughter and father is broken by a translator. Like a translator has to be that person that um, is able to communicate on both fronts at times, not even saying verbatim what was said to them. I was going to add, because you realize the point that I forgot to make, she does not speak Korean. She speaks French and a little English, so it requires the translators, you said. Yes, yeah, so there's a translator that is able to provide um, their sentences to each other. But you know what I mean, right? Where I say that she can't, she's not translating verbatim what is being said because it might be too blunt. It might be too offhand. It might be just too, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's definitely of these characters, though, to say exactly what they mean. But how can they do that if they are unable to communicate on each other's um, at a base level? So I thought that that is something of note. But yeah, throughout my throughout the movie, I was asking myself, you know, what is she really after? I, I was struggling to root for her because I didn't know that I, I couldn't understand the mission here. I knew that it was to meet her parents, but she wasn't reconciling anything. And she didn't come in there with a lot of questions. Um, she I think she came there with a lot of, you know, she has this the character has this attitude of I'm going to go out and I'm going to see what happens, but it's like, I don't think that she looks out for what repercussions that may, that may bring. Freddie is an incredibly unreliable narrator. And I think that's kind of what makes this film so poignant to me, which is that 
Davy Chu, who I had not heard of prior to this, I knew he had done like a couple of Sundance projects and a couple of uh, short films. He directed, I think, a documentary about Khmer Rouge refu- uh, refugees. So he knows the idea of like exoduses from Asia and that kind of diasporic effect that a lot of communities had uh, during that time. So I was curious to see what he'd do with this. And he has a laser-focused grasp on who this character is. And I think the compelling thing about the film is that it never lets up from uh, from Freddie's perspective, which I'm very in the lead. Jimin Park is fantastic. I had never heard of her before, and she is really excellent in this. And she provides this kind of really harsh exterior to her that you find yourself really trying to root for. And you do root for her at times. And then there are other times where she does these really, frankly, despicable things. But you root for her because of the journey involved with it. And you understand that she has a really deep uh, sense of humanity to her and a sense of what her priorities are and where she wants to go on the journey. And I found that really compelling. Um, But you're right. It does make for a movie that between the actual narrative devices, between the time jump arounds, between, you know, just Freddy as a character, it does make it difficult to get into at times. Like the initial scene that we see with uh, Freddy is her... Um, I forgot to mention uh, Guka Han, who plays Tenna, who's the uh, translator for her, and another one of their mutual friends. They're at a bar, and she gets to this whole thing of like, you know, I used to be a musician, so I understand the things of like, you know, tempo changes and emotional changes. And so I, one of the things I've been studying is the idea of fear. And so what she does is she brings all of these people at the bar over to their table to kind of release their inhibitions, sort of, and just kind of be one with themselves. So we understand right from the back that like, this is someone who does not necessarily function always in socially acceptable ways. And we see that much more down the line, you know, as the movie goes on. But we also see someone who is deeply passionate about human groups and finding a sense of belonging. I think that scene is really pivotal to where the movie goes. from. We have two significant jumps here, which are it's one. Uh, There's the um, they jump, I think, five years. No, they jump two years, then five years, then one year, I think. I must have missed the two years. Where's the two year? There's the one. Oh God! It's five years. We see her with her Frenchman, and they go yeah. to. He brings her French boyfriend to her French partner to go see her parents, and they're kind of like, you know, let home. And then there's the one year jump where now she's alone, and uh, she's I don't know. She's just on her own journeying, and then she's, that's you know, she's backpacking like, through France. We think. Okay. Um, like there's also the other one where. We see her right after meeting with like the elderly French guy who's like, hey, I can offer you a job, but also let's have sex. Well, when we explore a story like this, returning to your, I can't even call this like her home city because she wasn't raised here. She she identifies as French. That is where her home is. And that's where her family is, her friends. She says it several times throughout the movie. And, and people noticeably make that comment of just like, well, you don't look French, like you look entirely Korean. And I think that kind of gets to her after a certain number of times. It most definitely is going to mess with somebody's identity for sure. Like, how is this film not about identity? You're out here searching for, you know, the family that puts you up for adoption and understanding, oh, what would my life had looked like had I been here where this man who would have been my father saying he has this life set out for me, you know, he wants me to find a husband. All of a sudden he's looking out for the people I talk to. It's it's a very strong sense of discomfort because that's not this isn't a dynamic that they've established already. This is something that she's just dropped into and figuring out if this is even something she's comfortable with. So no doubt she feels um, like it's not a comforting situation to have this man suddenly take on what would have been the responsibility of your father because she has a father. He's in France. Um, and who, who I don't think, by the way, we ever see. We see the adoptive mom. I don't think we ever see the adoptive father. I think that that's true. I think we just get a picture. Yeah. 
So the movie feels familiar in a sense that a film like this feels very on the ground, exploring a new city. For some reason, there's always a nightlife scene. Like there's always a very loud, like techno booming, you know, club, because that's where people go when they're just in a new town. Hey, I mean, I can attest to that. I think traveling to a new city, you're like, let me explore the nightlife. And then you end, you find yourself in a booming club. Um, waking up forgetting everything that happened but but that being said she literally does she does and it 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 was so it wasn't enough for me to latch onto and go okay this is what this story is doing and i think that that's my problem with this film um problem meaning like you know i struggle to really enjoy it because i I wanted to know what I was following. And this film isn't one that's going to answer that question very easily. Um, it's more so just like, you know, if you want to follow this main character and see what her experiences are, um, the finale doesn't really offer you a, a sense of, you know, um, grounding. Uh, maybe it does. Uh, you don't see, I'm, I'm having this discussion with the raised eyebrow because I'm still figuring out what this film did for me. Um, but unfortunately, I can't say that I was a big fan watching it. So I think that that's where we find ourselves on opposite sides of the fence. But I do like hearing your points about how Chu wanted to have this character who is just owning in on the sense of community and struggling to find it and have trust in it. But I think it's also more than that. Like, it is definitely that. And that's where the movie takes it to go. But it is also a film about identity and what is given to you. Like, there's... You mentioned the idea of the father and how, you know, when we initially meet him, like, he's so regretful and he's so sincere. And, like, we get this vibe of, like, okay, we can trust him. But then I think, like, one or two scenes later, it literally just becomes a thing of, like, I want to help you by helping you get married. And it becomes this thing of, like, he sees her as still his daughter and a daughter of Korea when she doesn't see that at all. And it's this idea of not just what you think of your identity to be based on what you understand from those cultures, but what other people project onto you from that. And then there's even that a little bit with um, not necessarily the boyfriend who we don't get that much from, but like the um, the guy who offers him the job where he kind of forgive me. There's a joke earlier when the older Frenchman makes the joke of comparing her to like Michelle Yeoh, like the James Bond girl. And it's that idea of like, yeah, you can be as French as you think you are, but people will still look at you as not. Davy Chu projecting onto the idea of like, yes, this is our character who we're following and this is their ideology that we're following. But it's also about how people project that onto others and seeing that through a character who is as messy and as complicated and as we keep bringing up, unsure of herself as Freddie, because that's the thing throughout the film, even up until the very end, we're still not entirely clear on her goals. Like she finds things to do and she finds people to connect with, but we're not really sure of, you know, up until the very end, we're still not really sure of what we're following. But for me, it works. I was so compelled by it. Her reuniting scenes with her mother are just emotional. Small spoiler, but yes. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> but this film is more than those scenes. You know, the film is her entire journey, which doesn't, it kind of ends in an ellipse, right? Is that the word ellipse? Yeah. And, uh, and maybe that's kind of the point is like, you know, in your, maybe it's kind of the point of like her age where like she's in her mid 20s. She's got this high, you know, but uh, she's got this high pollution kind of job. And then by the end of it, she's, you know, backpacking around the wilderness, like seemingly detached from everything. Like maybe she rushed into things too fast and maybe that kind of got to her head even more. You know what? You're going to end on a higher note than me. So I'll be the Debbie Downer and you can rise us up, lift us up like the song Rihanna did not perform. At the I get to be an optimist. Yes. So Return to Soul for me is going to be, I really wish I didn't give your place around a five, but it's cemented in history. It's already burned into the time code. So I cannot, I cannot with good intent 
give this less than a five. Um, because I think that it, it rightfully is like a five and a half for me, but oh God, is it not half a score better than your place or mine? It's at least a point and a half better than, so I'm going to go ahead and give this a six and a half out of 10. Um, again, it is a weighted ranking. <laughs> um, Brandon and I, maybe I mentioned this on the last episode. We are working on a non-numerical ranking system. I promise the popcorn kernel pop meter is going he to have me hostage. Help. Yes, I do. Um, Oh God, please send us ideas. I honestly have no clue how we're going to do this. But that being said, six and a half out of 10 for me, um, like many of our films that got more depth than I can see, Brandon has helped me like remove a layer of what is to be appreciated from this film. Um, I think it is one of those films that I struggled to find attachment to because I was waiting for like a kind of like an arrow to like just pierce me forward. But instead of having that, we kind of just go in on this mindless, uh, I can't say mindless, but like this aimless um, journey with her. And that's really the point. So if you can find yourself enjoying something like that, where you spend this intimate time with the character from beginning to end, uh, and really just, you know, be there to ride with her. And there's not necessarily a goal you have to support other than trusting in the character and figuring out where they end up. So, um, that's an adventure for some, for me, unfortunately not. Yeah, for me, this is a really strong eight. I don't remember what I gave Missing last episode. I think Missing is still probably my favorite of the year so far. Uh, spoilers for the next one we're going to talk about. Um, but yeah, Return to Soul is really interesting. And like you said, I will concede to some of its shortcomings. Like, it is rather messy. The time jumps do make it a bit a lot to take in. You know, Freddy as a character is not necessarily likable or reliable. But I think just... Again, adoption stories have, you know, kind of a intrinsic value to me. So, like, if they're done remotely well, I can grip onto them. And I really did find Freddie's journey for as inconsistent as it is to still be emotional enough. And I found her grasp on what her goals and what her value of humanity were to be interesting enough. Again, like, Davy Chu never lets go of who that character is and us being in her shoes. On a technical level, it's really good. Again, the writing of it is really strong. The supporting cast are really quite well. Uh, it is expanding into theaters right now. I don't know if it'll be nationwide, uh, but it's definitely going into more theaters this week as we're uploading, uh, this being the week of Valentine's Day. So look for it in theaters if you can. It'll probably be on VOD, I want to say, like late March, early April at this point. We are moving ahead to the Marvel release of the week of the season because these things are dropping now. I think we're, we can look forward to three this year because we have the Marvels coming up at the end of the year, and we've already knocked out our... um was well, Wakanda Forever was, was last year. So I guess two Marvel movies a year. Here we are with our first one of 2023. We've got Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Uh, Brandon's got all the details for you. I cannot wait to hash this with him. Um, is it going to be a 25-minute discussion? Is it going to be a two-minute discussion? Well, we don't care about size on this podcast. So, Brandon, over to you. Okay, he just said we don't care about size on this podcast, so I have full permission to upload a two-and-a-half-hour show now. It's going to happen eventually. Uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. This is, again, as you mentioned, the MCU's first offering of 2023. We got a pretty hefty offering last year. This is the first film of Marvel Phase 5. Yes, Phase 4 is finally done. You may reflect on it as you see fit. We certainly have as well. Uh, it's the third in the Ant-Man series. Uh, Peyton Reed is back to direct. Uh, Jeb Loveness, who is going to be writing Avengers of the King Dynasty and who worked on Rick and Morty, he's writing the script on this, as is most of the cast. We pick up with Scott Lang uh, a couple years after Avengers Endgame. Uh, he has become a fairly successful writer. He has a memoir out. He has kind of a loving relationship. 
By the way, you can actually buy copies of that memoir, by the way. Like Marvel is selling physical copies. It's the whole cross-promotion thing. Um, but yeah, Scott is having a good life. He is trying to reconnect with his daughter, Cassie, now played by Catherine Newton from Blockers, uh, who has, you know, for years kind of struggled to live without him and has now trying to reconnect with him on a, you know, father-daughter level. He has a relationship now with uh, Hope Ben Dine, uh, played once again by Evangeline Lilly, who is kind of running her father's industry. Uh, Hank Pym and Janet Van Dyne played once again by Michael Douglas and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. They're still around. They're still working on quantum tech. They've kind of, it's ambiguous whether they've released Pym particles to the public, but they're more available now. They're not as much of a secret as they were in the past films. Anyways, uh, Cassie builds this device to kind of, as she describes it, as a satellite for the quantum realm, which is, of course, the microversal space that Scott was never supposed to shrink down to. And then he did. And then people time traveled and Avengers Endgame happened. Uh, she makes this kind of satellite thing. And Janet is like, don't do that. That's a bad idea. And they don't listen. And then they all get sucked into the quantum realm where they meet uh, a lot of colorful characters. Uh, William Jackson Harper plays a telepath. Uh, David Dalsmalchian, who was popping up in the original Ant-Man movies, is a different character now, uh, kind of like a goopy blob type character. But most importantly, we have Jonathan Majors as King the Conqueror. Uh, if any of you watched Loki season one, you know uh, he who remains at the end of that series was a variant of King, kind of forewarned that King was the big bad of Marvel going forward and that he had a ton of multiversal you know, variants and the multiverse is coming, it's going to die. And now Ant-Man and the Wasp and the whole family have to you know, split up and do different things and stop Kang from conquering the, the microverse. And then maybe the multiverse itself. Oh, no. Uh, Noah, it's a lot going on in one movie. It's a lot that they had to split up a lot of the cast for this. Uh, and it kind of shows um, I'm of different minds on this movie. I know that not everyone was a fan of the first two Ant-Man movies. And I we haven't actually talked about the first two Ant-Man movies. So I'm curious about your thoughts. Um, going into this, what was your expect? What was your expectation knowing that something as big as Kang was coming into an Ant-Man and the Wasp story. And did the movie work for you? Brandon. Noah. Ant-Man and the Wasp. Out the gate. I'm going to say it. Okay? Because you have to know my vibe going into this. Ant-Man and the Wasp. This, that, this number two of the Ant-Man series. It was a better movie for both Ant-Man and the Wasp. Here, in Quantumania, we have the introduction of Kang the Conqueror, played by the Amazing. The immaculate. Immaculate. Illustrious. But I don't know what that word means. I'm going to assume it applies. Jonathan Majors. Lovecraft Country. Anybody? Are you kidding me? Um, was just in that movie, Av- Aviation. What's that movie called? Um, Devotion, which we didn't talk about. It was very good, I thought. Devotion? Okay. Yes. Um, wonderful man. He was in the Loki series as well, playing the same character, uh, another timeline, another iteration, another type, I guess you can say. Um, but let's just pretend for a moment that Marvel didn't explicitly state that Kang the Conqueror was the next big bad. Let's pretend for a moment that all the discussion in the Marvel space with Marvel like fanatics and like film nerds and comic book fans are not going, Oh my gosh, I like, can't wait to see Kang the Conqueror. Kang the Conqueror. It's going to be so amazing. Like it is no secret that this is the next, um, Thanos adjacent villain for our MCU. So why now? Did we not think that there should be reworks to the script of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania that spends maybe, I'm honestly going to say, 70% of its written material going, him. We're not supposed to see him. He knows I'm here. Oh my gosh. 
what's going to happen now that he's looking for you? I don't know because he doesn't like it's so many instances of he, him, his, <laughs> like it's, there's a pro, there's a joke about pronouns in there somewhere. But anyways, Kang the Conqueror's pronouns are he, him, his. Okay. And Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania wants you to know that I struggled throughout the beginning of and middle of this film because it's no secret to the fans going to see this movie that Kang the Conqueror is the big bad. I mean, he's on the poster and so many of the promotional material that I wonder why this was a like lever they were waiting to pull. They give Michelle Pfeiffer's character, Hope Van Dyne, not Hope. I'm sorry. Um, Janet, Janet, so many instances and like iterations of the line of like, I shouldn't be here because he is here, you know? So there's like this looming mystery about who is after them in the quantum realm that the script really wants you to understand. Unfortunately, everybody already gets it. When they sat down and they saw Nicole Kidman pop up on the AMC screen, they got it. Everybody knew. So it was unfortunate that the script let me down in that sense. I, I There was no mystery because I all knew. Everybody knew. Um, and then... Uh, just moving along, you know, I won't beat that point to death. Uh, I will just say that we have the introduction of Cassie's character, like a full, not Cassie, you know, six-year-old Cassie, who is so cute, so lovable. I actually do like the first Ant-Man film. I love um, Scott and his daughter's relationship. I love how, yes, he's like this um, this wacky criminal who is like underlooked in the in the greater MCU and kind of to the Avengers as well. But he is one of the people who showed, he's one of the heroes who showed up and um, is the reason why we have our heroes back in the MCU. Like he was able to provide Iron Man this um, route to time travel back and return what was lost. Uh, I was trying to think about what the snap anyways. Yeah. Cassie returned. It's, it's Catherine Newton, who you may have seen in freaky um, amongst other projects. She plays Cassie Lang, except this time she's very much of like a uh, um, rebel mindset. Like she's all about like being um, kind of like a freedom fighter. Like she stands up for the little guy, um, he, he, nudge, nudge. And so now when we're placed in the quantum realm, she so quickly forgets about her life up top and wants to now fight for the cause that is those who have been imprisoned and, um, hunted by King in this quantum realm because he's trapped there. He's locked there. Uh, it's kind of spoiler. Should, you know, should I have regard for spoilers? Listen, if you're listening to this podcast, odds are you've seen it. It's the movie, Brandon. It's the oh. movie. Who hasn't seen it? All of you just proceed with caution. Okay? And like I, and Brandon, like I said, everybody knows Kang is in this. Like, no, it is right. no question but- that Kang shows up. So when the script so, uh, it like, it really irked me. I hope you can see that. So I won't talk about like his, his sidekick. I won't talk about that reveal, which is so like hilarious that I'm, I'm wondering if it was hilarious enough for me to go, Oh yeah. That's goofy. Now I like it. For right now, it's so hilarious that I'm going, what's going on? Like, what's going on, MCU? I get it. Phase five, tail end of phase four. One of our topics we almost covered today was the mention of um, Kevin Feige being like, oh, you know, we didn't really think about the overall themes of uh, this next phase from Marvel. And it's like, really? Like, uh, I don't know. Coming off of Love and Thunder, experiencing, uh, oh, coming off of Multiverse of Madness, experiencing Love and Thunder. I just don't think I am in the in the most polite of headspaces for the MCU right now. Um, with respect to what's what's on the horizon, still, I think the Marvels will be the my next chance I throw to Marvel just to be like, just give me something with substance. Um, Guardians Volume Three. Hey, Guardians Volume Three. Thank you. I but that's handled by Gun. Like that is, an, I think that that's more of a no brainer. Because 
because I'm waiting for that um, full-fledged um, sequel for Captain Marvel. Uh, maybe I've shared important points. Maybe I've only shared bits and pieces of a couple. But Brandon, over to you before I ramble on about how much I felt um, that this movie shrinked my expectations for the MCU. I will try and be a bit more consistent and not just not to dissuade your points at all. Like you've made very, very good points. And I agree with a Thank lot you. of them. Like, like start, like starting off with the script. Like I know a lot's been said of like, Oh God, the Rick and Morty guy wrote this and now he's going to write Avengers five. We're all doomed. Um, and like, yeah, I'm sure Jeff Loveman is a good writer and he seems like a total nerd. And that is one of the things that I appreciate about this movie is how weird it can get and how unabashedly weird it can get because it did feel like the first two Ant-Man films for what they were, had aspects of them that I really liked. Like you mentioned the uh, the Scott Cassie dynamic. I would extend that to the Hank and um, Hope uh, dynamic because I like the idea of, you know, fathers and daughters being this recurring theme, the idea of like what would a parent do to save their kid? And like that's been a thread throughout all these movies, including this one. And I felt like this movie kind of gets away from that in the idea that, as Kevin Feige mentioned, of like you want to take Ant-Man 3 in a really weird direction. And congratulations, you did that. And a lot of times it's really cool. And there's a lot of like really cool backdrops on the quantum realm they do a lot with. There's a particularly great scene with like, again, multiple Scots. I won't say how that works, but it's awesome, I think. Um, But yeah, it does get away from the movie a lot. And I think that goes to the idea of like, okay, here's Scott and Cassie's story. Here's the Van Dyne story. And we don't really collide them until like the last half hour of the movie, it feels like. And by then it feels too late. And I agree with you. It kind of makes the movie feel like this jumbled mess of trying to fill time with, like you said, things of like, he is here and just recurring pieces of dialogue of like, we've heard this seven or eight times. Think of something new, Jeff. And I know that Peyton Reed has more in this. And I think that's why the movie works because he's able to somehow grasp all of this around his shoulders and go, yeah, it's squeezing at the helms, but it's kind of working. And that's kind of how I felt about this. It's bursting at the seams. It's overbloated. It's not developed at a lot of times, but it's fun a good amount of times. So Rick and Morty writer takes on this project. That is so obvious because Brandon, here's the line from the movie I wrote down. Cause I was like, this is this, also, this is what we're, this is what we're doing. Okay. We the same line. Probably. Are you, this is the line. I won't even tell you who says it. Cause I, you know what? Let's not, let's not journey too far into spoiler world. Okay. It's never too late to stop being a dick. Nope, we have different lines, but okay. That is my line because it's not even said, it's like we stick on the word dick so for so long in that moment that I ask myself, what's going on here? What are we doing? Do I have to get up and go pee? Because I just might right now because I don't know where this is heading. Um, there, quite, there quite literally is a scene in this movie that is taken from the Rick and Morty series. I'm sure you know where I'm talking about. Where like I, this... I've only seen I've only seen the first couple episodes. I don't really know a lot about it. Well, you should know that there is a port that there is a portion of this movie where we're um, where we're told that there was a species that had developed themselves kind of outside of our understanding of time and then they returned and now they were uh, completely advanced that is very much like one of the episodes in rick and morty so when i saw that nothing clicked because i didn't know i I didn't connect the dots until um we arrived here today what is time that paired with the fact that like there's even instance there's even scenes that remind me of gamora and her her um precautious state when she was talking about how thanos really couldn't get to her in infinity war because she would reveal the details of what would help him win which is the soul stone here janet almost gives the same speech saying king the conqueror can't 
get her because he will have access to this plot device um, that will allow his reign to incur. Um, I want to say that all of the like sexual innuendos that go on throughout this movie, probably to his credit as well, probably to the writer, because we know Rick and Morty. Oh, you haven't seen Rick and Morty. You, you can't see, you can't speak on it, but it is very much like, Oh, how do you fly the ship? You stick your hand in the gelatinous like tube. Then you got to push them in all the way. You got to put like, your hand in all the way. You got to put your hand in all the way. And it feels kind of weird, doesn't it? But it feels good. <laughs> um, we talked about a live action adaptation of how to train your dragon earlier. And I just want to say that in this film, Exploring the quantum realm is much like an, a, taking a dip into the, the waters of Pandora in the way of the water. Or, um, there was somebody who mentioned there was familiar aspects of like Aquaman, you know, journeying into a new land and seeing what their environment and natural life looks like. In the quantum realm, it's no different. There is natural life there that's both threatening and friendly. Unfortunately, all of it is so like just not there that it begs the question of like, am I ready for continuing along with these comic book movies, just knowing that it's going to be an actor in front of a green screen, screen screen and nothing else. Like even the costuming, I've saw, I've saw people like rant on Twitter about how even the costuming has taken a dip because there was a time when superhero movies had like, there was a time where superhero movies had costumes that, that were part of the plot. Like they were part of, they bring up the Iron Man movies, they bring up the Spider-Man movies and how they always just felt so special, but now everything is nanotech. So everything is just immediately available. And how do we put on a mask? Oh, we kind of just tap our head and it just appears. I got my own gripes with it, but this world feels entirely new and just not there because it isn't there because it's all green screen. And even when Michelle Pfeiffer's hand goes on like this beast of a creature that she's supposed to ride, her hand like floats over nothing and it looks like nothing. So uh, maybe I'm watching it with a magnifying glass. Brandon, you can shut me up and put tape over my mouth and drag me to the next Marvel movie if you'd like. But at least the Marvels takes place on Earth, uh, or so I can hope, um, <laughs> takes place on Earth. And we can actually have like some live action, some live environments for our um, for our live heroes. No, I'm going to feed you and the Marvel haters some, like, feed for a second. Like, yeah, after Way of Water, there is no excuse for performance capture looking this messy or, like, these backgrounds looking this messy. I like the character designs a lot. I like what they do with the citizens of the quantum realm. I, You know, Bill Murray pops in as, like, this kind of kingpin sort of figure who, like, rules over a certain region the king's appointed. He's fun. And, like, you know, William Jackson Harper and David Osmachian and that whole crew, like, they do fun stuff. Katie O'Brien, who possibly was a resistance leader, like, there's fun stuff in there, but you're also right. It's a lot of things as, you know, as a lot of people on Twitter pointed out, a lot of like close-ups of faces where you can't see the other person, but they're definitely there. They definitely all acted in the same space. And I completely concede that like if Thor Love and Thunder didn't make that obvious, this definitely does. And I, to the costume point, like I think the costumes all look pretty great. I know a lot of people have gripes with the nanotech. I can let that slide for Kang. He's from 31st century Earth, whatever. But like, I get it. That needs to change. Two characters who are giant hug and it's supposed to be like, oh, they're so big and they're hugging. But really, they're just the same size. But it's just it's just such a hard scene to believe in. And that's my that's my problem is I'm like, I don't believe in you anymore. Maybe I've grown up. Maybe Peter Pan is now too old for Neverland. <laughs> Um, but, like, but, but like that's the thing is like go back to the first Ant-Man for a second that movie has a scene of a fight on a Thomas the Tank Engine and that feels totally and utterly believable you can't do that here 
No, maybe there was maybe there wasn't enough T.I. in this film because there wasn't any. Maybe there wasn't enough Michael Pena in this movie because yes. there wasn't any. Um, oh, but oh, because that actually goes to another. And I hate to be like, again, I no, like go ahead, go, ahead, go, go, go. We're going go, for it. But like the whole prologue sequence where they're talking about like where everyone's been and like, you know, here's hope running Pym Industries. Well, I know we're never going to see that again because this is probably the last Ant-Man movie for a while and this is all going to be in the quantum realm. So why do I care about that? And as a matter of fact, like Hope kind of winds up being the least developed of all of them. I like all the performances of this movie very much and I think all the characters get a moment to shine at least. But Hope is the character where I felt for a movie called Ant-Man and the Wasp, it's much more of a Scott and Janet movie and I felt Hope got more left to the sidelines as like, she's important to the point where like, her and Scott's big scene towards the end that, again, I won't spoil, I didn't really feel a lot, and I was supposed to really feel something, and I didn't. No, yeah, you're right there. Um, there is one, and usually I don't shout out Marvel movies for, like, their, like their cinematic takes, like, their cinematography accomplishments. Um, maybe most recently I can remember is, like, you know what, I did really love seeing um, Doctor Strange become Dead Strange, like, and the, you know, the grasp of all those demons around him or those phantoms, what, what you name it. Um, maybe that's more of a, of a point to like their after effects. But anyways, I just wanted to bring up the fact that there is that scene where you mentioned, um, multiple Scots and multiple hopes and the way that they come together and they really are, they do become, there's this synergy between them that I think is so beautiful on screen that as soon as I saw it, I go, damn, like that was a storyboard shot. Like that was a shot that they said, like, we have to have this, whether it be from the concept art or like, uh, you know, whoever's pitch for that scene, I want to applaud and give admiration to because, um, it was beautiful. Like that was the, that was one scene in particular that I go, damn, like I want more of this movie. I want more of these scenes over this kind of like stomp, 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 crush the bugs kind of movie. Um, uh, I, I know I had to bring that up because you had mentioned of it earlier, but well, I'm glad you did. Like that scene is probably one of the most purely human moments of the movie in a scene that is ripe with just what am I watching? But at its core has this really nice heart to it. I want to now, boom, narrow, funnel the conversation into Kang. This is our first. Let's talk about our first. Let's do it. Okay. Because Jonathan Major steps in again, instead of Kang, the one who, the one at the end, is that the first one? He who remains. Now it's Kang, the conqueror. So what, how do we feel? How we doing? Talk to me, Brandon. He's excellent. Duh. Um, Love him. So great. So menacing. So threatening. I will say there are one or two moments where it feels like he's going a bit too big. And granted, Jonathan Majors is like a Yale trained actor. Like this is the guy who made his you know name in Lovecraft Country and like Last Black Man in San Francisco. And like he knows how to build up that poise. And I love that about him. But for a movie like this, it feels like there's one or two times and it's not often where he's just going a bit too big, where like he's literally towering over Paul Rudd. And I found that a little distracting. But other than that, yeah, no notes. Like this is a Kang who poses a true viable threat, who is viscerally terrifying, who has all the subtlety in the world and is just about to break and you never really know when he's going to. And then when he does, it's terrifying. Like he really owns the screen every time he's on it. I find it interesting that when he speaks to Scott, he does get soft in his nature and he's able to like reason. Maybe he can't, he can't reason so easily with Scott because Scott really does not care about this person until he sees that his family is threatened until he sees that, um, Cassie may be under, under harm. But when he 
I, I admired his scenes with Janet a whole lot more. Janet and Kang have this, you know, lasting relationship while they both existed in the quantum space, in the quantum realm that I was, I, I was all for that. I wanted to follow their interactions a whole lot more than I'm, Ant-Man and Kang. I, I mean, like through line, Michelle Pfeiffer fantastic in this like no one is talking about her but really and i know you make the joke of like ah she has to say him 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 all this but no like she actually gets a ton of gravitas and like for a character who's technically been in the mcu for almost a decade now it's really great to see her get so much of the agency that a character and an actress like her would rarely ever get so like i I was really excited to see that Uh, and maybe this is just me being like oh this would have worked better but let me tell you what would have worked better is uh, having Janet, instead of outwardly expressing how he is under, is after them and how threatened she feels by this, she clearly has like PTSD after being in this space and having to be back in it against her will. We haven't talked about what brings them all into the quantum space, but hey, we'll save that for the watch. But I do want to mention that like, if it's such an internal struggle and such an internal like reawakening of this fear, let us see her experience that with herself, but she doesn't. Instead, she's not really shaken by anything outside of dialogue. Like, she can still fight. She can still fly. She can still reason. She can still, um, you know, she's still this witty conversationalist as we, you know, meet some other characters of her past. But that being said, um, the, the struggle for her exists outwardly and we don't get that internal struggle, which I think would have benefited the character who has probably the second most screen time, second to Ant-Man. I think we do, but it's again, mostly in the flashbacks. I think you get to see the purest form of Janet in those moments with Jonathan Majors, which again, Credit to him. He's pulling out so much in the other actors that they're forced to step up. And I think that goes to those flashback sequences where, like, there is a moment where Janet gets a hold of the thing that controls the thing. And she has this realization. And it's truly tremendous acting from her. Like, Michelle Pfeiffer is amazing. But, like, that moment in particular of, like, fear and awe and that whole kind of mix together of, like, oh, this is hope. But, like, not my hope. And I'm not sure how to really respond to this. It's, again, one of the more pivotal scenes in the movie, and Michelle Pfeiffer freaking kills it. What really lacked for me here was the script. But beyond that, yeah, you know, effects too. But performances are there. Um, when has Rudd ever been bad? Like, genuine question. I'm not, I'm not facetious. I genuinely don't know. I'm thinking because there's an answer, I promise you. But it's not I love you, man, because he's, he's amazing in there. It's yeah. not role models because, oh, God, that's so funny. Um, maybe that show on Netflix where he was like a duplicate of himself. Oh, yeah, on Netflix. Uh, yeah. Couldn't tell you what it's called, though. And that's just a maybe. You know, we didn't even watch it. Um, My Brother, The Idiot. Is that what it is? There's an, oh, that's another one. Did you like that one? I didn't see My Brother, The Idiot. My Idiot Brother, whatever. Um, Okay, but... But yeah. I, I do want to get on that point real quick because I've been thinking about the through line of the Ant-Man movies and what they actually... Because, again, like, for a while it's been Ant-Man's the joke. Who the hell cares about Ant-Man? You know, yada, yada, yada. And I think what I kind of realized is you know, as cliche as that stand up with the little guy kind of thing is, I think the Ant-Man movies are all about Scott and later Cassie as evidence in this movie of being POV characters, examining the the repercussions of power and what those structures emphasize. Because like the whole first movie is this idea of like corporate takeovers. And the second is like, you know, rich people uh, advancing for the sake of rich people. And this is all of like, you know, actual imperialistic conquering throughout all of it. Scott and Cassie have to go beyond you know just their interpersonal connections and their interpersonal desires and go and kind of root for them the movies don't necessarily get across that it's not some scathing commentary of capitalism by any means 
but it's a through line that I noticed while watching this movie and especially seeing Scott go from a place in this movie of, yeah, everyone loves me. I'm a published author. And then kind of the conflict of like, well, what do you do next? And kind of going through that whole, you know, existential crisis that he sees in Cassie, he sees the future in teaching her and showing her the mistakes that she's made. Again, it's not the deepest thing because I don't think Jeff Lovis necessarily understands the characters, but it is there. And I noticed it. Cassie also leads this like resurgence against Kang in the movie. And she ends up on like a uh, projector of sorts that like a hollow projector that like appears throughout the city. And she starts like asking everybody, you know, we have to fight, you know, we have to lead up against this conqueror. And I'm like thinking to myself, girl, You've been there two days. Like, you've barely spent time in his... I don't even think that she spent enough time in his jail cell to have to go pee. Like, I don't even think she's held her her urine throughout this movie. I don't think that she has bled from pain while these other people have been oppressed for decades because because Janet has... Well, Janet, I think, just left, so she probably hasn't been gone for decades. But I don't know how time works in the quantum space. I'm not from there. They make a reference to that. Dude, um, see you in two minutes. Rip, she never came back. I will also say that as a quantum people, Katie M. O'Brien plays Gentora, and she's actually amazing. I actually really found myself cool. um, going for the character, and I was like, hey, you're pretty cool. This was very much, and maybe you get me, maybe you don't, but if you do, great. If you don't, okay. This is kind of like a Star Wars story, I think. Like, the themes of Star Wars, right, like you say, like fighting up against imperialism. Um, yeah. Uh, anti-fascists. Um, I don't know why I said it like that. And then, uh, there's one more thing. Hold on, Brandon. Don't cut me off. Don't pull my mic. Um, there is a scene in particular or a collection of scenes outside Kang's uh, like headquarter base. I would have much rather explored Kang's hold on this civilization more than the, than the outer range camps that are being hunted by Kang or even spend equal time in both. Uh, we do have a little bit of time spent like in this bar of sorts where the Van Dyne and Pim are like meeting somebody from the past uh, resurgence movements. But that being said, when we finally get a look, even for even briefly at the surrounding space, the surrounding armies at Kang's palace, of I guess I was reminded of Dune. Like I love I love these space like um, dominating headquarters because they look uh, just completely I don't know. Like the spectacle on them is amazing. I look at that and I'm in awe because I just go, damn, like this guy really does have an army. Um, They show you all his ships and all his fleet of soldiers only to have them like not really appear in the final act. Like I'm like, really like these 30 ragtag rebels like stood against you. This isn't rogue one. This isn't, you know, this isn't Diego Luna. So uh, uh, you know what? I'll hold on to until the ratings. Uh, Brandon, over to you. I mean, we do need to talk about the finale and like maybe some of the after credits, but over to you. Over to you, Brandon. I, I was just going to bring up the quick point to, you know, to go off of that. We know, again, slight spoiler, this Kang has been exiled. So, you know, he's trapped there by both, you know, Janet and his own kind. Okay, fair enough. So where does he get the army from? Because we never see them under the mask. Like, are they robots? Are they androids? And like, when they get destroyed, like they kind of fade away. It's very ambiguous as to what the actual Kang's army is and how he got them. But again, they're th- and even if they weren't there, he is threatening enough, so I'm willing to let some of that slide. But it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, y- you need to do one more rewrite of this. Instead of offering one line of dialogue describing how he has those armies, we have, it's never too late to stop being a dick. 
Yes, by a certain character who I did not care for, but I'll leave it at that. I didn't care for him either! Good, we're on the same page! Like, it's hilarious, yeah, but it's a gag, and it just felt the it felt like when we... It's another dick joke. Remember in WandaVision, when Evan Peters, the guy who everybody thought was going to be... Wait, you've seen it, yeah? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I know you've seen it. Um, When Evan Peters shows up, the guy who is literally Quicksilver in the 20th Century Fox movies for X-Men shows up into a Disney Plus MCU series confronting Wanda, and he isn't Quicksilver? And like it's, and this is a multiversal story. What? Instead, his name is Matt, like something boner. boner. Oh my gosh. What is going on? I might even check out if he wrote that. Um, I still like the Ralph Boner gag. I think it's fun, but <laughs> Brandon, Brandon. Okay. But okay we, we, we've gone way over time. Post and mid credit scene real quick. What were your thoughts? Uh, I'm not going to lie. I thought that I only stayed for one credit scene. Was there a second? Oh, you didn't say for the post. We'll talk about after, we'll talk about it after or shed some light on what you can. But um, I stayed, sorry, you go. I, I was just going to say, uh, mid credit scene, almost great. I wish there was like literally five, six more seconds of screen time for it. I thought it was almost good and then it ends. And I just wanted a bit more from it. But like as is, I think the concept is cool. I thought it could have been great, whatever. The post credit scene, uh, was fine for a minute. It is definitely going to be in a thing. Like, it's not a tease for a thing. It's going to be a scene from a future thing. But it's not just it, showing, like, Howard the Duck? No, it's like okay. a from an upcoming thing. But there is a performance in there that I think is pretty great, even for just a post-credits thing. Again, I don't want to spoil too much, but, like, let's just say it was worth it just for that one moment. You're telling me Queen Latifah is joining the MCU. I'm not not telling you Queen Latifah is joining <gasps> the MCU. Oh, my gosh. Okay. The mid credit scene... I see why they casted who they did, if you know what I'm saying. Um, I understand what you're saying. Dude, multidimensional, literally. Um, I just can't wait. Like, it's it brings to question, how will they do this without it not looking so goofy? I mean, if we're even talking about incursions coming soon, I mean, we have the series Secret Invasion approaching with Amelia Clark. I cannot wait for. But whether that's related or not, what is that incursion going to look like when Everyone starts showing up. And you know what? I'll say this. I like the scene very much. Doesn't look great. Ooh. You know. Doesn't look great. <laughs> thank you for saying that because it's it'll be a very easy shtick if you throw them all in a costume and cover the face, which is like every single enemy we got in Quantumania. Yeah, it's a cool message. And like initially it looks cool. And then you pan out and then. They definitely did this with like a week's worth of time on underfunded VFX budgets. And uh, yeah. All right. Brandon, you go first with your rating. I want to give it a seven so bad. I really, really do. But I have to give it a six and a half. Because um, again, I like what it's going for. I think there's at least a couple of performances that really grafted onto me. The tone of it, for the most part, is there. It becomes unabashedly weird. It allows for a lot of it to come through. And again, there are threads of characterization and threads from the original Ant-Man movies that I didn't think they would come back to. Cause again, this is going to be so different, so completely detached. And yet it actually is like for me as a fan of the Ant-Man movies, this felt rewarding to watch. I felt like I was watching Scott go through his final arc. I felt like I was seeing the beginnings of Cassie. I felt like I was finally seeing, you know, Hank and Janet for who they were meant to be in certain times. And again, visually it's ambitious as hell. It tries a lot. I really respect that. And I can let that, uh, I can let that surpass a lot of the very, very glaring flaws. The script is a 
freaking mess. The visuals definitely need a more pass. You know, there's a lot of character moments I think are just passed over beyond just, you know, giving more expositional dialogue. If you hate this movie, I get it. But I can't. I'm sorry. Noah, you're giving me a very evil grin. <laughs> no, no, there's no evil look. There's only... There's, there's only Kang. There's only ambiguity that lies ahead for my expectations when it comes to the MCU. So, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, it's number three in the Ant-Man verse, I guess, Ant-Man trilogy. Yeah. Um, let's talk about number threes that have done it better. Let's talk about number threes that have done it worse. Let's talk about the ones that have done it better first. Yeah, I know where you're going with it. Iron Man 3, Captain America Civil War, Thor, Ragnarok. Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, unfortunately, I think is the weakest as a number three for our Marvel heroes, for our Avenger heroes. Jeff Loveness, you step in at a point where you maybe you were asked to like, you know, it's it's hard to step in the third baton handoff, you know, for a film like this, especially when the expectations are so grandiose from someone from a viewer like me who takes things and says, OK, now fit it into my puzzle instead of, OK, now give me this slice of pie that I will enjoy and that I will eat and not even think about the rest of the cake because now that pie is inside me and I love it. No, fit into my puzzle. Um, that's how I watch his movies. If you do too, we probably share similar views, but Brandon, maybe you're more of a pie eater now that I think about it. I'm more of a cake guy. Well, do you like key lime pie? Yeah. Yeah, sure. I like banana cream. Not going to lie. Fair. What are we talking about? We're, I'm still giving my review. It's like almost there, you know, but I, I, I can't give your place or mine a five and then return to soul a six and a half and give this more than return to soul. So you know what? This is going to have to live in the happy medium space of five and a half out of 10 for me. This was the longest review I think I've given. That's why me and Brandon are going to be transitioning it very soon. But that being said, Ammon of the Wasp, Quantumania. Ammon of the Wasp is the better movie to showcase both heroes. Um, Quantumania introduces excellent um, uh, villain performances from King the Conqueror and Jonathan Majors, as well as um, some more screen time from our loving um, Hollywood actress Michelle Pfeiffer as Janet Van Dyne. Uh, does it do much for the Ant-Man story? Uh, Brandon says yes with the dynamics between father daughter. I say less so because this did not feel as though it was the next thing to happen. But hey, that's just my opinion. We're going to see where it goes. Five and a half out of 10 for me. Let's hope that, that, um, hope carries through to the Marvels because I really am excited to see Spectrum and I'm really excited to see Kamala, uh, Khan being paired up with, um, Carol Danvers. It's going to be Really marvelous. I Even that tagline is amazing. Higher, further, faster, together. And that'll do it for episode 44 of Plot Devices. Thank you all so much for tuning into what is probably going to be a very elongated episode. I'm so sorry, future me. You're just going to have to deal with it. Uh, listen. While size doesn't to- matter! Also, I won't make size you. jokes anymore. I won't make size. It was, it was topical, Brandon. Like, it's for, like, it makes sense for this episode, does it We're not? not- we're not talking about anything else except for the Ant-Man and Wasp characters. What are you talking about? Um, if you guys enjoyed this episode and you want to follow us further, please do so. Twitter, Instagram, uh, at Plot Devices Pod. TikTok, at Plot Devices Podcast. Again, more content coming up there very soon. Uh, RSS feed, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. You can find the show. Just search for Plot Devices on there. Give us a rating. It helps the algorithm. It helps push us to onto more audiences. I want to thank my co-host for today, Noah Guzman, who so adequately and wonderfully joins me as always and puts up with my nonsense like what i give return to soul a very good review noah uh how are you doing what are you enjoying nowadays and uh, where can people find you online 
Hello, everybody. Uh, right now, I am back into my mobile gaming days. Uh, I kind of become recently obsessed with this Marvel game on my phone. It's called Marvel Snap. If you find that you're a gamer, too, uh, you can follow me on my socials, have some conversations with me. I love online gaming. Um, so you can follow me also on my TikTok page. So uh, my Instagram is going to be Guapo Guzman. I actually rarely plug it on this podcast, but I know that Brandon always tags it on the description anyway. So go ahead and give me a follow there if, you, if you're so interested. If you feel so inclined, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Noah's Plotting, um, usually checking out just like uh, movie conversations there, uh, the latest uh, in pop culture entertainment. And then on my TikTok page, I'm Noah, I'm him. It kind of looks like Noah, him, him, he, he. But I am having discussions around uh, a book recently that I picked up that I'm trying to encourage more engagement for, for kind of like a queer book club. It is called Greedy, Notes from a Bisexual Who Wants Too Much. And it is from writer... Jen Winston. And so that is something I'm picking up and I'll be, uh, after I finish chapters, I'll be providing, you know, invitation for conversation on the TikTok. So if that sounds kind of like your speed, uh, movies, queer books, I'm your guy. Twitter and Instagram at the movie King 45. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music. That's Cablebox underscore music. New gigs and uh, music are being announced very soon. Please uh, check it out. I promise. Hopefully, maybe. Uh, all the descriptions and all those plugs will be down in the description below. Please check us out and check any of those out if you are curious. So with that being said, uh, episode 44 of Plot Devices in the bag. Uh, for myself, from Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices. And we'll, uh, we'll catch you in the microverse.